Well, we're returning to our journey through the book of Acts, and we are actually still in the series, Paul facing the Governor Felix in his ongoing trial, and we're going to be looking at chapter 24 this morning, verses 22 through 27. We'll read that in a moment, but just to bring back to your reminder, so Paul has been uh, accused of three things that he is innocent, completely innocent of, and that is sedition or stirring up uh, crowds to riot against the authorities, the governing authorities, that he's guilty of uh, sacrilege, that he had defiled the temple, that he's guilty of sectarianism, that is that he's teaching that there's a whole other sect of Judaism, which of course would be forbidden in that religion. So these are the charges. None of them are true, of course. You and I have been on the journey with him. We know these are uh, false accusations. They're all based upon lies. They hate Paul because they hate his Lord at this point. They don't want Christ as their Messiah. They want someone else who would accommodate their lifestyle, their prosperity, setting them free from Roman oppression. And so, quite frankly, they don't want anything to do with this Christianity that Paul is espousing here. So in chapter 23, verse 1 to 5, we see Paul uh, was realizing that he isn't going to get a fair trial before the council. That's when uh, Claudius Lysias, of course, the tribune, had called a council the morning after the mob tried to kill him to try to ascertain what those charges are, realizing that he's not going to get a fair trial. He's already been punched in the mouth for disrespecting that high priest, who was a particularly mean-spirited man. And so he pulled the pin. He pulled the pin on the whole meeting by bringing up one word. Do you know what that one word is? Resurrection, that's right. So it was very timely that that's where we finished off when he pulled the pin and mentioned that that's what he's guilty of. He said, that's the only thing I'm guilty of. And it's very clever of Paul as well to sort of um, state that that's the one issue that he's being, that he's being uh, accused of because the one thing the Roman government doesn't want to do, indeed our government didn't want to get involved with the adjudicating situations within each church, my goodness, what a, what a task that would be, and the Roman government did not want to get involved in very, various areas of theology. So Paul knows that. But this is the center pin of our Faith, our Christian faith, is based upon the fact that Christ lives. They don't want to say that's the same Christ that they had just put to death, and they don't want to, uh, certainly don't want to ascribe to the lifestyle, the ethics that comes with Christianity. So in verse 12 to 15, Paul is hated, of course, for what he stood for. There is murder in their hearts. Of course, it re reaches a fever pitch as 40 men take a zealous vow not to eat or drink until Paul is dead. They're going to kill him. His nephew, of course, becomes privy to that information. How, we don't know. The text doesn't say. But he comes and he tells Paul, and Paul turns him around and uh, has him go see the tribune himself to disclose that information to him. And of course, the tribune not uh, wanting to rather keep the peace and wanting to be able to adjudicate the trial in a proper way that would satisfy Rome, uh, gathers up 470 soldiers and whisks him away in the middle of the night headed for Caesarea, some 60 miles northwest of Jerusalem, stopping in Antipatris, and the rest of the soldiers went back, and just the horsemen, the 70 horsemen, went on on horseback, giving Paul his own horse as well, to make the rest of the trek the next morning to Caesarea. So here is where we find him in our text. He's standing before Felix. Governor Felix has already received a letter from Claudius Lysias, uh, stating what the case is at the end of chapter 23, we see that. And so we 
stop at this point and read our text. So Paul, well, let me just say at the beginning of chapter 24, they had brought along sort of their, their hit man, their mouthpiece, if you will, this, um, this advocate for the Jews named Tertullus. And he is their professional spokesman. He's their attorney, if you will, that's representing their case. Ananias is there, that same wicked high priest and some of the others. But there's some that are not there, and they are most noticeably absent to the apostle, and he wants to draw that to the attention of Governor Felix, and that is there are these Asian Jews, and if they have this charge against me, where are they? I'm ready to answer my accusers. They're not here because this was a lie. So that's basically his answer to Felix. I'm not guilty of any of these things. I've only been in Jerusalem for 12 days. Seven of those days, I'm taking the vow, paying the money for four Jewish men. They weren't Gentiles. I purified myself and they were purified. They were going, cutting their hair and doing the rest of the uh, Nazarite vow ritual in the temple. I was only there for 12 days, seven of those days. That's where I was in the temple taking care of this these vows and the, re- the other five, I'm on my way to Caesarea, and this is where I've been. So where and at what time could I be accused of causing all of these riots? Well, it didn't happen in Jerusalem. Okay, that's right. Well, then there's the Asian Jews, right? Well, shouldn't they be here to testify against me? And they're not. So if you're Felix, what are you thinking? This man's innocent. I mean, he's just, this is, I've got nothing to grab a hold of here. I'd like to please the Jews, more importantly, please Caesar, keep the peace. I'm not going to keep the peace if I don't do something with this man that appeases the Jews. What do I do? Since there's one single issue that this came down to, and that is the resurrection, and that's where it ended. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day, verse 22, to the end of the chapter. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. There's so much we've learned from the journeys of Paul. Indeed, even including the the journeys of Peter before him. And we thank you for that. You've allowed to remain in the permanent record these, the details of this travel. We know the things that are not disclosed in Scripture were not important to you to disclose to us. They're left for us to search the Scriptures. As it were, in the analogy of Scriptures, the whole of Scriptures, to come up with what is an appropriate answer to the things that are not disclosed. And so... We know that all of Scripture is useful. It's profitable for life and godliness. And so help us now, Lord, to see what this portion of Scripture has for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So among the pagan rulers, this this Felix has been given a rare opportunity because he's assigned Paul to not... Instead of being thrown in jail, which is, per, which is typical, really, that's what they did in Jerusalem in Antonia Fortress. They put him in, in a cell. He's in the palace. He's 
at Felix's house. He's in a nice place. This is a, a very nice place. And he's given certain limited freedoms. So he's free to move about the house. We can assume, because this was normal protocol, that any prisoner is at, at the very least going to be chained to a soldier, a Roman soldier. And so he's also allowed to have his friends to minister to him, to hang out with, as we would say. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you're going to speculate, at least I did, in terms of whether or not, is it for manipulation because he's after his money? So he's, he's sort of doing nice favors to Paul to gain money? Or, I mean, what is his motive here? It's hard to say. But he has, here's the point. Here's the point for us this morning. He has no less than the Apostle Paul living in his home, get this, for two years. What do you think Paul was doing? You know what Paul was doing. But he kept him there. Is it for money? Is, what are the reasons? We, we want to take a careful look at this and think about this this morning. But among all of the pagan rulers that we've come across in our journey, this one's the most pathetic Because in two years, there's no record that he ever did become converted to the Apostle Paul. As far as we know, he never did. Certainly in this two years. Two years with the Apostle Paul. No other leader had given any apostle that amount of time to live in their quarters with them. So God has something here for us to think about in our own lives. Let me begin our examination of this particular topic this morning by quoting Proverbs 27 and verse 1, and you'll understand what we need to look at this morning with regard to Felix before we move on to Portius Festus, the next governor. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Tomorrow, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. Maybe not exactly those words we've used or we've heard others say to us when we present the gospel, but that's essentially what they're saying, isn't it? Some other time. Some other time. And that's this pathetic figure of a human being. Uh, not now. And we're going to see why as we go through the text. So what we want to talk about, and this is a little uh, subhead for you this morning, is taking advantage of opportunity. We compare the Apostle Paul and how he always takes advantage of every moment of opportunity that he has. And Felix just kicking the can down the road and living his life like he wants to, however he wants to. So verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. I would suggest that this is... Um, Characteristic of this man, that he typically puts things off. We have a, a phrase around my home, Barbara and I. What's that phrase? Did you hear her? Do it now. What work? Should, should, should we do this? We've got this now. There's this thing to tend to. Do it now. Do it now. We always say that. Never regret that. Always regret it when we don't and when we wait. Procrastination. Listen, it's a, it's a silent, deadly killer of opportunity. And we see that with this man, Felix. He put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide the case. This is one excuse after another. He's simply enjoying his 19-year-old wife, Drusilla the Jewess, who had been uh, coaxed away from her husband in Syria in order to marry Felix and become his third wife. She is in the Herod family. She's Herod Agrippa I's daughter, sister to Herod Agrippa II. 
They have a child, and the child's name is Agrippa. He died, they, I believe the historians say, in 79 AD with the explosion of Mount Vesuvius. This is quite a family. We don't know exactly how he came to his accurate knowledge of the way. Was it his Jewish wife and the inquisitive nature of the Jewish family of the Herods? They're the Herods of the Gospels. The grandfather being the great Herod who, uh, when Jesus was going to be born, had every child to and under what? Killed. Infamous family. How did he come across this knowledge? It doesn't, it, since it isn't disclosed, as I said, this is an important God is saying to us. It does, but take that information into account. He has, he has very accurate knowledge of Christianity. Is he living like one? No. He's not. He's, he's committing adultery. He caused this young lady who got married at 15 years old and was, was pulled away from her first marriage and married Felix at 16 years old. And so she's a teenager, but she's in royalty. Where did he get that information from? We don't know. So we can only speculate and move on. Knowledge of the way, that's Christianity, as we pointed out before. So it, it brought to mind the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus, in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, said, you, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. It's not going to be your accurate knowledge that does the trick. Not the fact that you've been raised in a Christian family, as glorious and wonderful as that is. No, no, no. That's not what it's going to be. He says after that in verse 40, Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. How much of this have we seen? Christian family after Christian family after Christian family after Christian family. And most, and in a lot of cases, we see sons and daughters living more like Felix than Paul. Not understanding that there are, is a passel of ethics that go with this life we're called to. That's Felix. He doesn't care. He doesn't want to know. But look who he has in his house. Whether or not Lysias came down to testify, we don't know. But you can imagine that if you have the governor himself calling Lysias to come down, he probably did. Again, that isn't disclosed. It's not important to us then. We don't know. We can assume that he did because he would obey orders. And Felix made it clear that we're going to we're going to settle this matter as soon as Lysias comes down and gives his account. It doesn't really matter. It's a moot point because he was going to imprison him anyway. Well, we learn that from verse 26 and 27. Number one, he wants money. Number two, he wants to please the Jews. Verse 27. Verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So whether this is conscience bothering him, that he wants to, this is after all, Paul, remember, made it clear that he's a Roman citizen, and for what Felix has seen so far, this guy isn't guilty of anything, whether his conscience is about, or it's all about manipulation. I'll grease him up a little bit by letting him enjoy the splendor of the palace to a limited degree, and even have his friends over. We don't know. Certainly Felix could be capable of any of those, right? But there, there he is, given these orders. He wants Paul to be comfortable. We don't know exactly why. He wasn't placed in a cell, as I said. But he was, we can assume, on good information, historical information, that he was chained as he would become in Rome and Caesar's household, as you familiar with the end of our story in Acts. So at that point, you wonder, <laughs> chained to a Roman soldier, talking to Felix. He keeps bringing him down. Felix wants money, but what do you think Paul's talking to him about? 
So who's the real prisoner here? <laughs> the soldier? The, even the governor? I think so. I think so. It's amazing. So these friends that Paul's allowed to have, we can assume at least one of them is Phil, Philip. Remember Philip? He's the Philip the evangelist. Remember, he went all the way from the bottom of the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, witnessing all the way up to Caesarea, and that's where he landed. So Philip's, we can assume, been there and perhaps uh, preaching the gospel and seeing people one to Christ. There's others that could be there with him. Verse 24 after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. So obviously, this obviously implies that they had been gone. They went somewhere, and now they're back. So he's come back with Drusilla. And so it, it just it stirs your curiosity as what the conversations were like between Felix and Drusilla, the kinds of things that Drusilla, given her history, I mean, this is true stuff. This isn't, this isn't the script for the next Hallmark movie. They'd make a pretty cool Hallmark movie, though, wouldn't it? Wouldn't end that way. Verse 25. Now we get to something here. Now I want you to look at these words in verse 25. This is pivotal right here. So Drusilla and Felix come back. And the text in 24 says, he sent for Paul and heard him speak about money, about the Jews, about what? Well, there's our man. There's our man, right? He's going to talk to him about Jesus Christ, isn't he? Anytime his mouth can open, it's going to be something that will have a Christ-like intention to it. If we're going to be judged on every word that Matthew says, every word out of our mouth, Paul's thinking about that. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we're revealing what our heart really is all the time. With Paul, we can be assured, can't we? Not so sure about ourselves, maybe. But for Paul, he's speaking to him about the gospel, faith in Christ Jesus, believing in that resurrection. No question about it. Let's see how he did it. That's what I want to know. I want to know how he did it. Because God left that information in for me and for you. How did he do it? What's the fourth word in verse 25? And as he reasoned. Isn't that how God gets it done, according to Isaiah? Come, let us. Listen to me, Felix. Listen, Felix. This Jesus was the Christ. He's not in the tomb anymore. He is alive. He's reasoning with him in a specific way, in specific categories right here. Here are the three. The three categories are, he reasoned with them about what? The weather? Politics? No. He reasoned with them about what? Righteousness. How's that hitting Felix and Drusilla? Self-control. <laughs> I mean, you've got to admire this man's moxie. And the coming judgment. It was that, were those elements extant in your last gospel sharing you did with someone? <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about three things, if you don't mind. Do you have a few minutes? <laughs> It'll only take a few minutes. I'm going to talk to you about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Oh, <laughs> look at this. Look at this. I'd love to, but no. I don't want to listen to those things. He doesn't want to listen to these things. Righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. Felix was alarmed. Well, I guess so. This word means he is terrified. He's terrified. Why? Because you can't just bandy about the corridors of knowledge, pal. 
You, you can't just grow in knowledge. It's not okay to just become some um, theological um, know-it-all in areas of theology. That doesn't do it. No, there's an ethic here. There's a whole lifestyle change that we can fully assume, given what the historians have said about Drusilla and Felix and that whole Peyton Place mess with those two, adultery, all the rest, lying, manipulation, greed. He's rife with greed. Just avarice. This man is cruel, remember? I mean, all of these things. And Paul's talking to him about righteousness. Felix was alarmed. He's terrified, and he says, go away for the present. See, maybe it's the greed that's pulling him back a little bit. Go away. I don't want to listen to what you're talking about right now, but I will be bringing you back because I heard you brought a big bag of money into Jerusalem. Yeah? Yeah, that was an offering. It's a whole lot of money, wasn't it? Yeah, there's a whole lot of poor in Jerusalem. That's not mine. I brought men with me from the churches that gave for accountability's sake. This was an offering to the poor. Maybe Felix just misses that part. Or maybe he just assumes like we often do in a, in, in a way of uh, sort of uh, um, casting our sins on other people. He's thinking, oh, yeah, right. Well, what did you, you must have come up with your own cut. When I get opportunity, when I get opportunity, I will summon you. That is a death knell in our lives. Felix, you have opportunity. Now is the time. Now is the day. So we're going to look at these three, the three crucial convictions to cover when communicating the gospel. The three are convictions because Jesus taught us that's what the Holy Spirit came to convict you of, okay? So John 16, 8 makes it very clear. You see the same three categories. And when he comes, Jesus said, of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the whole world, including Felix and Drosilla, concerning sin, that would be self-control, righteousness, and judgment, I like that Paul says self-control. That's pointed to a man like Felix, isn't it? You have none. You have no restraint to your flesh. You indulge as, you, as far as you want to. <laughs> You're taking bits and pieces. You're taking knowledge uh, here and knowledge there, cobbling it together and saying... I am a Christian. I am saved. I'm alive. Look at your life, Felix. Examine yourself. So let's look at these three categories. Why is it important to make sure and bring conviction with regard to righteousness? Well, you cannot be saved by your own. No matter how meritorious you think your self-imposed system of ethics are in your life, you can't. Matthew 5.20, Jesus, back to the Sermon on the Mount, makes that very clear. Here's why. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, what? Exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees, those are the most righteous dudes we have. It has to exceed them. That means they fall short. Oh, buddy, do they? Way short. These are hypocrites. These are whited sepulchers inside our dead men's bones. These are religious liars. The woods is full of them. And he says in verse 48 of that same chapter of Matthew 5, you therefore must be what? Perfect. Perfect. 
Why? As your heavenly, or you could say, because the one who created you and is demanding the restored soul back that belongs to him, but because of your sin he lost, you need to look like, since you are the bearer of his image and likeness, you have to be what he is. And what is he? Perfectly righteous, right? Perfectly righteous. How are we doing on that? <laughs> Not very good, are we? No, if we're honest... Felix didn't want to be honest. You know what? I'll talk to you about this again. I'll, I'll bring it up again. Oh, that we think we have all of this time. Poor Felix. Now, here's the, here's the greater commentary on what actually took place. The, the, the whole issue of righteousness and how, how that's looked at in a wonderful, probably our best, no, typically, for sure, our best, our, our most uh, uh, comprehensive soteriological book, and that's the book of Romans, right? So chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. Now listen carefully. It may be impossible for us, but here's what we call the good news. But now the righteousness of whom? Of God has been manifested apart from the law. Good. I need something outside of the law because I can't fulfill the law. I've proven that over and over again in my life. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, so the law, as Paul determined it in Romans 7, the law is good. It's good. The prophets declared it because it describes who God is and what God requires of those who bear his image. But who can, who can be saved then? No one, if you're using the law. But they bear witness to it. Verse 22, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's all you have to do, Felix. But it's everything that you have to do. Because it will transform your entire life. He now is your life. For there is no distinction. And here's where the net closes on the universality of sin and condemnation. In verse 23 that we're all familiar with. For all have what? Sin and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, because we lost it in, from the garden forward because of our sin and are justified what? By works? No, we're justified by his grace. Favor we don't deserve. He enters in and has a way to make us right. How is it, Job would ask, how is it that a man can be right before God? The implication in asking that question is it's impossible. You can't. You can't. It's a gift. Oh, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, that's his son, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received, and lest we forgot already, to be received by what? Faith. Why? This was to show your righteousness. Is that what it says? This was to manifest the righteousness of God. You mean I'm not only forgiven of the penalty of sin, I'm released from the power of it, I can actually manifest, I'm able to engage into the ethics of Christianity, I can actually look something like Jesus Christ? Yes, as you manifest a righteousness that doesn't belong to you, and you manifest it in such a way that it brings glory to God. From glory to glory. Or mean in the image of Christ. Remarkable. Verse 25, whom God put forward, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, this should humble us, he passed over the former sins. He let you, Mark, live while you lived directly in refusal of him, in, in direct offense to him. Are you, are you feeling me?
was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he's not only the perfect, perfect righteous one, but he's also the one that came, though having perfect righteousness, taking on the form of a human in the likeness of men and became the justifier by giving his life to pay the penalty for our unrighteousness. We made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. These are the kinds of things, I'm sure Paul's doing it in a much better way, but these are the kinds of things that he's sharing. Paul is the human author. So, chapter 10 of Romans, verse 3 and 4, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. This is his fellow Jews being ignorant of that, that the righteousness would have to come from God and seeking to establish instead their own They did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Secondly, self-control. Self-control. He's reasoning with Felix about self-control. This would be an interesting conversation to have witnessed. Why self-control? Because you're unable. You're incapable You are actually unwilling to keep yourself from sinning. You won't. You can't. Those are two different categories. One's willful and one lacks the capacity to even do it. If I was willful, you can't do it. He must do it. So Felix and Drusilla, of course, were colossal failures in this Regard, so Paul is talking to them specifically about that. We don't withhold the gospel, the, the details of the gospel from things because we think it might hurt their feelings. We bring them the gospel with specificity to their life because we love them. Because we love them. If we weren't so worried about our own reputation management, our own people-pleasing, desire for the approval of people, and so we fail. Tell them what they need to hear. Here's a list of things that we have trouble having any kind of control over. It's a categorical list, and Galatians chapter 5, right, from verse 19 to 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Listen to this list. And it's not comprehensive, by the way. This is, thankfully, his short list. Sexual immorality. Let me, let me know if anybody escapes all these categories. And this is a short list. Let me just put your hand up if you like. I've never had a problem in any of those areas. Here we go. Here we go. Sexual immorality impurity, sensuality, those are different categories. Think them through. Idolatry, we know what idolatry is around here, don't we? Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So that continues the list. There's there's an ellipse there, right? A dot, dot, dot. Things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before. See, Paul doesn't hold back. He's talking to a collective group of churches here. This is only one of his epistles that's written to a plurality of churches in Galatia, in that province. So this is a lot of people that are hearing this. I warned you. He warned them straight up in areas that They were engaging in, just like Jesus did with the Samaritan woman. Go get your husband. Today, that'd be like, man, that's mean. I'm I'm not married to the man. I know you're not. And so were the others that you lived with. That's love. It's not loving people if you withhold the very things they need to hear to get them to the cross. Don't soft-pedal a gospel. 
that cost your Savior his life in a horrific way. I warned you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So again, there we are stuck. It's like, oh boy, now what? But the fruit of the Spirit, right? Verse 22 of Galatians 5. Fruit of the Spirit is ninefold in this particular passage, and there's others that pull up, that develop the full panoply of virtues and ethics of our Christian faith. But here's the list of nine. This is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and what? Self-control. He's talking to Felix and Drusilla, the governor, the, the man who has the power to condemn him to die. In a moment, he could be offended. Now, how many of us would vapor lock at that point? You're standing before the man who holds your life in his hand, and you know how he's living. You know how he thinks. You know who he is. Well, Paul does. Why? Because it's not Felix that holds Paul's life in his hand. Who is it? The Lord, the giver of life. The Lord, the redeemer, the sustainer of all life. Remember, we are immortal until our witness is through. We have to remember that. Against such things there is no law. It's completed. All of these things are completed in Christ. And all of that righteousness is given to you if you will only what? Believe. Believe. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we're about to be about the business of cooperating with what the Spirit is trying to produce in us and we put off the former things of the sinful man and we put on the things of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. You can find a lot of help in that regard. Don't know that Felix or Drusilla made it. So third, the third category that's necessary, these are the necessary convicting categories whenever you're giving the gospel. You want to cover these convicting categories, the coming judgment. How many, how many otherwise faithful sharers of the gospel remember to tell them about this? There's coming a judgment. Why do we include this category? Because God will judge everyone. The scripture is very clear about this. I have a few verses from the Old Testament, a few verses from the New to just support this idea. By the way, the word judgment is used 97 times in the Old Testament. It's used 73 times in the New. Psalm 96, we'll start with the Old Testament. Verse 13, for he comes to what? That's right, to judge the earth. That's why he's coming. He will judge the world in righteousness. There it is. And the peoples, that's his measuring, so that's, his, that's his canon, that's his standard, is perfect righteousness. We should tremble at that point if we're without Christ. We, we should want to run for shelter, run for cover. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness, in his faithfulness, not ours. Ecclesiastes 11.9, walk in the ways of your heart. And the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. What are you feasting your eyes on? What are you indulging in? Jeremiah 2.35, and all of these I picked because they have a little bit different nuance to them, all essentially saying the same thing. Listen to this from Jeremiah. You say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. Not a safe thing to do, Felix. Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. Nothing's hidden, whether good or evil. And in the New Testament, we can see 2 Peter 3, 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that are now 
that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of what? Of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You know, when you use that word sometimes, do you, can you tell sometimes by the countenance on the person's face that you're talking to, it's, it's reading, you legalist, you fire and brimstone guy, right? What are you, Jonathan Edwards? You're going to dangle me over the fires of hell with a thread? Look, if we don't tell you, who will? This is real. This is true. God doesn't choose to soft pedal it either. We don't have license to do that. He's not giving it to us. Hebrews 10. Listen to this. This is New Testament. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of what? Of judgment. And a fire, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. I don't have to pay attention to that. I can live how I want. I'm a Christian after all. We've got so many people in our country that claim to be Christians that are doing exactly this. And we should be fearful. We should be prayer warriors over this with our family members and our friends and our neighbors, our co-workers that claim to be Christians, and yet they violate this every day. It's stop using his name. Live with that modicum of integrity. If you belong to him, act like him. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be phony. Live like he did. He's giving the means to do that. Verse 29, Hebrews 10, how much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Do we not have at least a modicum of fear for that being? And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31 is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We know verse 27 of Chapter 9, don't we? Is it appointed? Help me finish it. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then what? Is this, is this, are we understanding this wrongly? I mean, this is all over in the scriptures, Old Testament, New. I had to, I had to winnow this down to a handful for time's sake. It's all through the scriptures. Why? Because God is such a mean-spirited tyrant? No, because he loves us, and this is his warning to us. There's a judgment coming. Why? Because I am the God and there is no other. I am God and there's no one like me who's perfect in holiness and righteousness. And he's coming. He's overlooked your sin so long. How long do we expect him to do that? Acts 17, Paul, when he's on Mars Hill, verse 30 to 31, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to what? To think about it. And when you have an opportunity or opportune time, then maybe to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is resurrection, folks. We're back there again. Everything hangs on that word. Paul knew that. It's about the resurrection. And he stops his defense on that word. And then he gets, providentially, two years of an audience of Felix and Drusilla. Remarkable. How did... Paul withheld nothing that is needful for an unbeliever to hear. We do. 
if we're being honest. We do because, because preserving the relationship is more important to us. Keeping my job or not wanting my, pan, fam, my own family members to hate me all, more than they already do. So we withhold, don't we? We say the same thing that Felix said. You know, there will be a better opportunity. That's Satan's word. That's his. Look, I just read Hebrews 10. Can we talk? I need to talk to you. You okay? I'm okay. Are you? I just read something. Can I talk to you? Hey, look, let me just assuage your fears right now. I'm a Christian. How many times have you heard that now? How many times? No, you don't understand because I know something of your lifestyle. I know something of how you are, which is revelatory of your heart, the true condition of your heart. How can Christ reside there? I'm, I'm afraid for you. Help me. This is emphabos in the Greek. This is, he, Felix was terrified. So, because Paul didn't withhold anything, all three of these categories, there's no escape, is there? There's no escape. Verse 26, at the same time, he hoped that money. <laughs> now we've come to the point. He hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. What was his motivation? There's one. Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Paul left, or Felix left Paul in prison. Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, then I will summon you. There's a prominent conservative Presbyterian author and um, pastor as well, Dr. Clarence McCartney, who told a story about a meeting in hell. Satan called his four leading demons together and commanded them to come up with a new way that would trap more souls. I have it, one demon said. I'll go down to earth and tell people there is no God. It'll never work, said Satan. People can look around them and see that there's a God. I'll go and tell them that there, there is no heaven, suggested a second demon. But Satan rejected that idea. Everybody knows there's life after death and they want to go to heaven. Let's tell them there is no hell, said a third demon. No conscience tells them their sins will be judged. Their conscience tells them that their sins will be judged, said the devil. We need a better one than that. Quietly, a fourth demon spoke up. I think I've solved our problem. I'll go to earth and tell everybody. There is no hurry. Settle down. Slow your roll. You're getting all wound up like that preacher. Settle down. You've got time. You see how this is Satan's word. Procrastination sets our destination. Remember that if you remember nothing else? procrastination sets your destination. How can I say that? Because if you're still saying, like Felix, I'm, uh, there'll be another time. Do you know that there'll be another time? No. So at that point, the point of, pre of pro procrastination, your destination is set. You've set it. Confronting the prophets of Baal in front of all ten tribes of Israel. You remember Elijah in 1 Kings 18.21. Elijah came near. I love this. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if it's Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him one word. Look, look. If you want to be part of the world, drop the name. Stop calling yourself a Christian. 
In, maintain your integrity. Choose you this day whom you will serve. If it be Christ, let it be Christ and follow him. If it is Baal in this world and the things, the pleasures that you decide that you're going to cling to, your indulgences that you don't want to let go of, then say, that's what I'm going to do. And there are some people, some unbelievers, who make that clear. And I have to give it to them for their integrity, don't you? Stop using his name. You're adding condemnation to the list. There's an old English proverb. Some of these days is none of these days. In Luke 12, 16 to 21, you're familiar with this story, but it makes the same point. You'll recognize it as soon as I start to read it. Jesus told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Ah, must be American. We're prosperous. It's awesome. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He's just, just raking it in. Verse 18, and he said, I will do this. I will tear down these barns and build bigger ones. I can afford it. I'm going to get a bigger one. I'm going to get a better one. I'm going to get a cooler one. That's what I'm going to do. That's what my money's for. And he said, and there will, there, in those bigger, larger barns, I will store all my grain and my goods. But <laughs> I'm not getting, hey, don't get crazy here. I'm not going to give any of it away. This is mine. I got to live in a place like this. I've, I've, I'm going to just find a way to just make things bigger. I'm going to keep investing in other things that create more money for me. Why would I do anything other than that? Well, he says, why, doesn't he? Verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, what? Remember the first word? You're, you're a fool. You're, you're being a fool. This night your soul is required of you. Maybe Paul said something to Felix along those lines. You don't know if you've got tomorrow. Tomorrow's a word that does not belong to you. Today does. Right now does. You're making choices whether you're listening and applying things to your heart, letting the Lord convict you or not. But you don't have tomorrow. None of us do. This night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared. Whose will they be? What are you saving up for when there's so many things of spiritual value to invest in? He's missed something big, hasn't he? Verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He became poor that you and I might become what? Rich in him. Things that matter. And it's not material things here. Psalm 32, verse 6. We heard Psalm 32 recited this morning. Verse 6 should stand out given this message. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you, period. Is that what it says? Offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. He's here now. He's looking straight into your heart now. Spurgeon said this at this point, Oh, dear listener, slight not the accepted time. Waste not the day of salvation. The godly pray while the Lord has promised to answer. The ungodly postpone their petitions till the master of the house has risen up finally and shut the door. And then their knocking is too late. I mean, I made a big mistake. It's too late. God has entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation. Tag, we're it. Amen. Verse 20 of 
Second Corinthians five. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal through us. We'd better have it right. We'd better not withhold anything needful for an unbeliever who's held bound to hear. God, help us not to be so selfish as to do that. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled with God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we looked at that carefully in Romans chapter 3. Chapter 6, verse 1, it goes on. We put the chapter breaks in. This goes on now. Verse 1 of chapter 6, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't receive this word in vain or in a matter of futility or emptiness or ways that it doesn't become useful to you right now. Verse 2, for he says in a favorable time, I will, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you, quoting Isaiah 49, verse 8. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We're going to bring this in for a landing, but i got a couple more things I want to share. Psalm 69, 13 is one of them. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O Lord, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. There's an ancient historian named Charles Rollins uh, that tells this story of a Grecian magistrate a, um, who was not very well liked. He was... He was pretty much hated. It was like Paul, they, all the people of the area of his magistrate, he, uh, they were planning to kill him. So he writes, so his name's Archias. Archias, a Grecian chief magistrate, was so unpopular that his people conspired to take his life. The day arrived for the execution of the conspiracy. Archias was crazed with wine when a friend came from Athens and hastened to put in his hands what afterward proved to be circumstantial evidence of the whole conspiracy. I can tell you how this is going to go down. You need to read this. The messenger said to him, the person who writes you these letters urges you to read them immediately. They contain serious information. Archias replied, serious affairs tomorrow and he continued in his reveling that night in the midst of his mirth the conspirators rushed into his palace murdered him and his associates and this author goes on to say in spirituals in spiritual affairs how many times has this mistake been repeated Faith in tomorrow instead of faith in Christ is Satan's nurse for man's perdition. And then he wrote this, one does not need to commit great crimes in order to lose his soul. All he needs to do is simply neglect to do what he should do. Men today in this Christian land are under condemnation, not simply because they have sinned and are sinning, because of their failure to accept Christ. End quote. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. How much more does he have to beg us to come to him? There'll be a day, there'll be a day when that window closes altogether. The opportunities are over. Every moment we're given to live is a critical moment to decide our destiny. This is your, a statement for you because at any moment it could be decided for you. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Ephesians 5.14 Romans 13.11 Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For your salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 
Arise, shine, for your light has come. Isaiah 60, verse 1, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. I implore you to take advantage of this appeal from God himself out of his love for you. I implore you, be reconciled with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Oh, Lord, we don't understand why are we often so recalcitrant, so such rebels, so resistant, thinking we have yet another day, and yet another day, and yet another day, when in fact we have no proof of that. People are taken at various ages and stages of their life. You don't give warning. You don't give notice. But this is notice, Lord. You've given us notice here this morning in your kindness and in your goodness. You've offered grace and mercy. Oh, for these years, perhaps, you've overlooked the sin to bring about a moment of conviction for us. May now be the moment, O Lord, that all of us who hear this message, hear the sound and the voice of your words, would be reconciled with you through belief in the Son, Jesus Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen.